Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite you to take your Bibles and open them to Romans chapter 6 with me. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 10 will be our first text of 2022. And the title of the message is Dead to Sin, Implications of Our Union with Christ. Let's read now beginning in verse 1 of Romans chapter 6. Paul asks, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we might no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. May the Lord add his blessing, the reading and hearing of his word. That's been a number of weeks since we've been in this verse by verse study of Romans, and I know we tend to forget. Uh, so just uh, let me review a little bit how we got to this point in chapter six. Most important thing to remember that the theme of the entire book of Romans is the doctrine of justification by faith. Justification by faith is the one and only way that sinners like us can be forgiven and reconciled to our holy creator. Paul begins the letter with a thorough indictment of all humanity. We are all guilty, he says, from the most brazen pagan down to the most religious Pharisee. We are therefore deserving of God's just and righteous wrath. And as Paul writes, all of us are without excuse. And this indictment over all humanity goes on for nearly three chapters until finally in verse 24 of chapter three, Paul begins to give us a little hope. He says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ. That word justified means made right because of Christ's righteousness imputed to us by faith. And Paul goes on in the next chapter to declare that this grace is available to all kinds of people. Just like all kinds of people are guilty, all kinds of people can be saved. Again, from the most brazen pagan to the most legalistic Pharisee. All who would believe. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say that that has always been the case, that there has never been any other means for sinners to be reconciled to God, even in the Old Testament, other than faith in Christ. He cites the Old Testament patriarchs as Abraham and David as examples of this. And in chapter five, Paul gives us a list of the results, or we could say the implications of the doctrine of justification by faith. To remind you, he says, we now have peace with God. So if we now have peace, that implies that one time we didn't. And that is true. Before we were saved, the Bible describes us as enemies of God. 
in open warfare and hostility to him. But now that we're born again, he calls us no longer enemies, but sons and daughters. And Jesus goes far as to call us his friends. He says, we now have hope for the future. We don't have to live in fear of death because we have assurance of salvation. We have a new perspective on present suffering. We don't know what lies ahead, but if 2021 is indicate, any indication, 2022 probably holds some suffering for many of us. But we don't have to fear that because suffering now is the means by which God purifies our faith and strengthens our faith to serve him, sanctifies us to make us more like Christ. And then, of course, one of the great benefits of justification by faith is the love of God that is shed abroad or poured into us by his spirit so that we now can show that love to other people. And Paul concluded chapter five, you remember, with the treatment of a doctrine called imputation. That is the idea that God allows two people in human history to stand as representatives for the rest of us. The first representative is Adam. We are guilty because of Adam's guilt, because of the sin curse passed down to our generation called original sin. We no longer have the ability to please God in and of ourselves, and we're deserving of God's wrath. And then the other person, of course, is Christ. Those who put their faith in him are justified, forgiven, saved and safe from the wrath of God. And therefore we are said to be in Christ. And I told you before Christmas to hold on to one verse until we could get back to chapter six. And that is Romans eight, verse one. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ. And so today we're going to, beginning in chapter six, move to the next section of Paul's letter. And the emphasis for the next two chapters will be the doctrine of sanctification. So justification, to remind you, is a once-for-all declaration of righteousness. God, as judge, pounds the gavel and says, that one is forgiven. He's righteous because my son's righteousness I've imputed to his account. Now, the doctrine of sanctification is the idea that over time, Christians become more like Christ through their lifetime. Justification and sanctification are always to be connected, though because our sanctification has a definite starting point, and that is the moment of justification. So justification can be defined as God saving us from the penalty of sin. We don't have to fear wrath or hell because God says we're forgiven. Sanctification can be defined as God saving us from the power of sin. That is, we no longer are controlled by sin because we've been set free through our relationship to Christ. In fact, Often in the New Testament, we find this word sanctification spoken of in the past tense. Paul sometimes simply refers to believers as the sanctified ones or those who are sanctified. However, taking the whole of the New Testament, there is certainly an already but a not yet element to this doctrine of sanctification. That is, we know that through our own experience, don't we? Even though we're saved, we're born again, we have assurance of salvation, we still struggle with sin we still sin, or at least I do. We're not yet perfect. But in the eyes of God, at the moment in time where he justifies us and forgives us and declares us righteous through imputed righteousness, we're set apart by him. And we continue to mature as we battle sin for the rest of our life, making progress over sinful habits. And we call this, appropriately enough, progressive sanctification. 
Now, I pray as we start a new year this week that every member of First Baptist Keller has the desire this year to make progress in sanctification, that is, in personal holiness. And I believe that the key to doing so is to be found in our text today. Now, everywhere the Apostle Paul preached this gospel of grace, he was confronted with the same objection, particularly from his Jewish peers. It went something like this. Now, Paul, that doctrine of salvation by grace through faith will lead to societal chaos. If you go around telling people that their sins can be forgiven, that they can have assurance of salvation in this life, and that God offers grace through simple faith, those people are going to go nuts. They're going to sin and sin and sin until this world is unlivable. Now, we must admit that that seems like a logical argument from our experience. After all, we have uh, rules and laws and punishments for a reason. It's because people have proven themselves time and time again to be sinful and very sinful. You might have read in the paper this week just one example of how sinful men can be when it's alleged that a father here in our Metroplex drove his 14-year-old son because he was not yet old enough to drive to a convenience store so that he might kill other boys who he had an argument with earlier in the day and then drove him away. People are sinful and incredibly sinful. And we must also admit that this argument that if you offer people grace, they're going to sin more, takes seriously God's holiness and commands. It acknowledges the reality of absolute truth and the existence of good and evil. And so they're on the right track. However, that does not mean that their argument is correct. And Paul spends a good portion of the next chapter explaining why the doctrine of justification by faith does not lead to an increase in sin in a believer's life, but it leads to sanctification, a separating from sin, and a growing into the image of Christ. And so I want to point out three things from our text today. Number one, let's look at two errors that we must avoid as it relates to the gospel. As it relates to the gospel of grace, there are two errors that we have to be very careful of. You've heard it said that the pendulum swings to extremes. And historically, that's been the case with Paul's doctrine. Those two extremes, on one hand, is legalism, and the other is license. Legalism is simply the idea that everything is a sin. And so people need more and more rules and more and more regulations uh, to keep them in check. It's a fear-based religion. It's, it's a works-based righteousness. It, it, it leads to the belief that God loves us when we're good or because we're good. This was what Jesus battled every day as he walked this earth alongside the Pharisees. Remember, their rules and regulations that they'd added to the old covenant had made life weary and burdensome for the common person. That's why Jesus says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's not saying if you come to faith in Christ, you'll have an easy life. He's saying, I'm not going to wear you out and overburden you with rules and regulations. In fact, there's freedom in coming to a relationship with Christ. But people, because of history, are afraid that if we give people freedom, they can't handle it. And so rather than trusting the Holy Spirit 
to lead people to all truth and to grow them in the image of Christ, we're going to add rules to them. And that's what the Pharisees did. To the, to the simple command of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. They added rule after rule until people couldn't even eat a chicken's egg for fear that it was laid on the Sabbath. And that's why Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. He says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath to be something to look forward to. But because you overburden the people with rules, they dread it. He rebuked them for it. But legalism was not the error that Paul found himself fighting here in chapter 6. It was the other side of the pendulum. It was license. License is the permission to sin without consequence. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Specifically, Paul was defending his message against charges of antinomianism. Anti means against, nomos, law. He was being accused by his Jewish peers primarily of saying that the law has no meaning. It's of no use, that we ought to just live it up and live any way we want to. Of course, that's not at all what Paul was teaching. If anyone knew the law and its purpose, it was Paul. He was trained thoroughly in the Old Testament law as a young person. In writing his own biography, he said he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews and a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He had come to understand the true purpose of the law was not to save, but to close our mouth. He said so in Romans 3.19. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. That is, when we stand before God and his judgment bar, we won't have any excuse. We won't have anything to say because he's given us his law and we violated every one. The fear was that if you offered people assurance of salvation and they no longer feared God's wrath, they would just go crazy and the world would devolve into chaos. Well, let's look at Paul's response. It begins with some rhetorical questions in verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? That is in response to your accusation. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? So their logic went something like this. Paul, you says when we sin, we can ask God's forgiveness and he gives us sin freely by grace. And that's a good thing. Would you agree with that? Grace is a good thing? Sure. Their logic is solid so far. But then they go past that and they say, if we sin and God forgives us by his grace and grace is a good thing, logically we should sin more and get more grace. And then when we get more grace, let's sin more. He said, well, no one would believe that. Of course they do. People still believe that today. Some of uh, the most evil historical figures believed that and taught that. That let's just sin, 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 and God's obligated himself to forgive us. And similar to that were some of the Greek philosophies that the body, the physical body, is evil. The spirit is good, so it doesn't matter what we do in the physical bodies. Sin, 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 we get grace, grace, grace. And so Paul says, is that what you think I'm teaching? What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And he answers his own question in verse 2, may it never be. Now, it would be impossible for me to impress upon you how strong a negative term this is in the Greek. Unfortunately, some of your translations 
translations simply interpret that in your English Bible as no. That's not nearly what he says. <laughs> he says, heavens, no. Mercy's sakes alive, no. May it never be. Don't even think about it. Don't even contemplate it is the Greek translation. Now, perish the thought. Now that he's forcibly denied that he was teaching antinomianism or license, he, he explains why such a teaching is incompatible, and I would say even impossible, based upon the nature of the doctrine of justification by faith. And so now that we know the errors to avoid, let's look at the truths to embrace. Two things. Number one, by virtue of our union with Christ, the person we used to be is dead. You remember I said that in chapter 5, Paul teaches that all of humanity is in one or two camps. You're either still in Adam, which means you're guilty because of your connection to him and you're deserving of God's wrath. Or through regeneration, you've now moved into the kingdom of God's dear son. You are in Christ and therefore forgiven and saved from God's wrath. Now look at verse 3. Paul says, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Now be careful here. We are a Baptist church after all, so baptism is very important to us. We, we put it right out on our sign. But Paul here is not referring to water baptism. Rather, he is speaking of what theologians call our mystical union with Christ. It's called mystical because it's hard to understand, fathom all its implications. You likely know the Greek word baptizo means to be immersed in. That's why we put people all the way under the water. It always means that in the Greek, never anything but. But that's a picture and a symbol of the spiritual significance of that word, which means to thoroughly identify with so that you can't tell where something begins or ends. And so he's saying through faith in Christ, we are spiritually immersed in Christ and so thoroughly connected to him that we share in his death, burial, and resurrection in some hard to understand way. Now these are hard truths, but truths nonetheless that we are to embrace as believers. He says, not only are we, are we crucified with Christ, you've heard that, but verse four says we are buried with Christ. Look at it. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, what's the significance of burial? Well, it tells us of the reality of the death. One of the first heresies that emerged in the first century in the church is that Jesus, when he was taken down from the cross, was not really dead. He was mostly dead. And so when they put him into the tomb and they closed it up, the coolness of the early morning revived him and refreshed him, and he got up and moved the stone and walked away. That's a heresy. It's a lie. It's called the swoon theory. Don't believe it. But that's what Satan put into people's heart to tell. And so those kinds of heresies will always be around. Paul is affirming the literal nature of Christ's death because he was buried. Those Roman soldiers had a PhD in death. They knew when a person was dead and when he wasn't. And when they declared him dead, you can rest assured he was truly dead. 
That's why they surrendered the body to Joseph of Arimathea and he put him in his borrowed tomb. And Paul is saying just as surely as Christ was really dead because of our union with him spiritually, our old man is dead and put away forever. But that's not all. We're also resurrected with Christ. And just as surely as on the third day Christ rose from the dead, we are now alive with him. Verse 5 says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So we are connected to Christ by faith. And in some wonderful, mysterious way, we share in his death, burial, and resurrection. And what is water baptism other than a symbol of these truths? So when we baptize someone here, what do we say? Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. We are picturing Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and we're picturing the mysterious union that we have with him, that the old person we used to be is dead and gone. And now we're a new person. We serve a new Savior in a spiritual reality. So that, that's the first thing we must embrace, is that by virtue of our union with Christ, the person we used to be is dead. And secondly, we must embrace by virtue of regeneration, the new birth. We are no longer slaves of sin. Now, there was a time where we were. Remember, because of original sin, David says we're conceived in sin. We can't not sin, if I can use a double negative. But by virtue of the new birth, we've been set free from sin's dominion in our life. We now have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. In short, we are free. But when Paul declared people free in Christ, what his lost Jewish peers heard was free to sin without consequence, which is the definition of license. No, Paul says, may it never be. We are now free to obey Christ like crazy. We've not had the ability to do that before. But now that the old man is dead, we can. Look at verses 6 and 7. Knowing this, that is, we share in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we no longer are slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. He's talking about us. I was looking for an illustration this week to try to help you understand this. And I called a friend of mine who does prison ministry. He says, here's how I explain it to the prisoners. I said, as long as you are in this prison, you are under the authority of the state and specifically of the warden. And when he says, jump, you say, how high? You are under his authority. You are in his realm, in his dominion. But when the governor expunges your record and clears your name, and they open the door and set you free, you're no longer under the authority of the state or the warden. Now, because of a lifelong habit of obeying the warden, he may come around, and in a moment of fear, you might do what he says, but you don't have to. That's the point. You are no longer under his authority. You are no longer in his realm. You are no longer in his dominion. So the point is, he who has died is freed 
That is from the dominion of sin. Now watch out here, be careful. Been a lot of false teaching as it relates to this phrase dead to sin. It does not mean, of course, that sin can no longer tempt Christians or that we cease to sin this side of heaven. That's what some have taught historically. Uh, They take this death to the point that would say, well, just like a corpse no longer can respond to stimuli, you you can poke a corpse with a stick or take something hot and put it to the skin and there's no response to that. That's how we are to sin. Satan can tempt us all day long and, and we won't ever sin because we're dead to it. If that's what this means, I don't know a Christian, do you? I'm not a Christian for that matter if that's the case. And the apostle Paul's not because as we're going to see in chapter 7, Paul describes in vivid detail his own daily battle with the flesh and with sin where he says the things I want to do I don't do and the things I don't want to do I do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? So we know it can't mean that. But I know what you're thinking. Pastor, we we still do sin. So, So what does it mean that we're dead to sin? Well, it's hard. And I've wrestled with it all week, and, and I've finally come to, to this understanding. It's the best I can do. I hope it helps you. Dead to sin means at the cross, Jesus not only paid for our sin debt through substitutionary atonement. We get that, right? He took our place on the cross and suffered the death that, that we rightly deserve. It's not just that, though. But by virtue of our union with him, original sin which is our utter inability to not sin, was defeated. We, like Adam now, for the first time, have the ability not to sin. So, what should motivate us in 2022 to righteous living, to separation from sinful habits, that is, to making tangible progress in sanctification, is not fear that God's going to strike us dead, or send us to hell. We don't have to worry about God's wrath. Remember Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What should motivate us to righteous living is the reality and the implications and dwelling long and hard upon our union with Christ. The fact that the old man is dead and that we will spend eternity with the Holy God. Look at verse eight. He says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Just as Christ came forth from the grave and ascended into heaven on the 40th day and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, Paul later says that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And so if we're going to spend eternity with the Lord, why would we want to be growing in sin today? He says, knowing that Christ had been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. See, Jesus left the glories of heaven. We just celebrated at Christmas and took on human flesh. Why? So that he could die. He couldn't die unless he had a true human body. And so in some sense... Death was master over him like it is all of us. It was coming one day, and it did. Not until he said it would, and not until he gave up his own spirit at the cross, but he died, literally, one time, once for all. And on the third day, he came forth alive, proving 
that death could not hold him and hell could not keep him. That he is more powerful than death and sin. And because we are connected to Christ by faith, friends, we no longer have to fear death or dying either. Right? Our, our deacon in the last service said something very sobering in his prayer. He says, very likely that some in this room won't live to see the 365 days of 2022. And if last year was any indication, he's right. But we don't have to fear that. They don't have to paralyze us. Why? Because Jesus has defeated death through his resurrection. And to be absent from the body is to be present with him. So Paul's point is, why in the world would we want to go on sinning in this life when not only has he died to save us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, one day we're going to be free from the presence of sin. And so we ought to live like it today is this point. It goes on verse 11. So even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. You're no longer in that kingdom of darkness. You've been transferred to the kingdom of light and of God's dear son. Now live like it. Remember I told you three months ago when we started this series, I said, some of these Sundays is going to seem like you're in a systematic theology class. And I'm trying to resist that because a sermon is more than a theology lecture. A sermon calls people to change. The Apostle Paul had to establish some deep theological truths in the first three chapters. But now that he's done that, he's saying, now here's how to practice righteousness. Here's how this ought to transform your life every day. You ought to be becoming more like Christ every day. Rather than adding habits of sin, your life ought to be marked by a decrease in sin and sin's power in your life. You think, well, if that happens, I'd be happier. And I said something to a friend of mine this week who's a pastor. I've been a Christian now 43 years, over four decades. And when I was in my early 20s, I really believed that by the point I am in life now, 50 years old, I'd just about be sin free. (laughs) I'd have kicked all of the bad habits and, you know, just... On cruise control to heaven. But you know what I found? Though the Lord has been gracious to help me have victory in certain areas of my life, what has happened is the closer I walk to Jesus, many of the things and attitudes and words in my life that I was blissfully ignorant of have been revealed to me as sinful. Right? And I think that will be the case for the rest of our life. And that's what's going to make heaven so glorious (laughs) because we are going to be so tired of our sin that when we're free finally from the presence of sin, heaven will be paradise. And he says we ought to live that way today in the light of the fact that we are dead to sin. That should motivate us to make progress in sanctification. We serve a new master. So Paul's point is this antinomianism or license and legalism are impossibilities for true believers because the gospel of grace does not lead to moral chaos. It leads to personal holiness. Finally, some questions to ponder. Did you notice that Paul here in Romans uses what we call the Socratic method to teach? He asks questions to get us to thinking. And he does so here in chapter 6. 
And let me ask you some questions to get you to think a little bit of how this applies to your own life. And I'm anticipating a question because I had it this week. Paul, you say we're dead to sin, but what if I don't feel dead to sin? Let's admit, sin feels very much alive sometimes. It's like a lady I heard about who was talking to her friend about this passage, and she said, well, I've never really felt dead to sin. I did feel a little faint towards it once. <laughs> we can relate to that. Well, we're to trust facts and not feelings, aren't we? The fact is God has declared us dead to sin, and therefore we are, and we ought to live like it. And so here's some diagnostic questions about your personal sanctification as we head into a new year. What is your attitude towards your own sin? Do you hate it? Are you doing battle with it daily, or have you made peace with it? What I mean by that is often in the New Testament, Paul describes the Christian life. He does so in martial or, or military terminology. He tells Timothy to be a good soldier, to fight the good fight. But what happens sometimes if you've been a Christian like I have for four decades, you just get tired of the fight. And you sort of raise a white flag to certain areas of your life and say, well, I can't win that one. I've done pretty well in some other areas, but I'm just going to leave that one alone. No, Paul says, get back in the fight. Fight your sin until the day that you die what is the trajectory of your life as it relates to sanctification? Are you making progress or not? Now, be honest with yourself. Now, I know we're all biased towards ourselves, right? Have I overcome through the power of the Holy Spirit certain sinful habits? Have I made progress even in the, in the last few years? And if you don't think you can be objective about your own progress, ask your spouse. They'll tell you. Ask your kids. They will certainly tell you. We were sitting around the kitchen table yesterday sharing our New Year's resolutions. You can probably guess what mine is. And when I, I said it out loud, one of my kids said, you said that last year. <laughs> and I have four kids, so the next one said, and the year before. <laughs> but we're talking about separation from sin. Some questions to ask yourself as it relates to, to making progress in sanctification is, have I ever made a clean break with it? One of my pet peeves, and I have many, is a billboard I see around town sometimes when I'm driving around that says, try Jesus. It sort of indicates, you know, if, if you're bored, <laughs> everything else hasn't panned out, you know, give Jesus a try. Take him for a test drive. That's not the gospel. Friends, the gospel is to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him without looking back, making a clean break with everything else you've been trusting in. It reminds me of those Muslim invaders who landed on the shores of Europe and pulled their boats to shore and lit them on fire. The point is we're either going to die in this effort, or, but there's no turning back. That's the kind of commitment the Lord calls for. Have you made that clean break with your sin? Or are you just dabbling in the faith? Have you been biblically baptized? When I said that this text is not talking about water baptism, that doesn't mean water baptism is not important because water baptism is a public profession of the internal truth of what's happened. And the reason baptism is so important because Jesus said to do it. 
It's the first step of obedience to him. And you say, well, pastor, I come to church regularly. I don't need to be baptized. Yes, you do. Because you want to begin this new year making progress in sanctification. The only way to do that is to be obedient to the Lord. That's what it means to make progress in sanctification. So what is believer's baptism? Well, it's, it's opposed to any other form of baptism, including infant baptism. Believer's baptism, which we teach and practice here, means that a person, by their own volition, publicly declares allegiance to Christ. That they have, by faith, been united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And that's pictured in the act of putting them under the water and bringing them back out. That's how you enter a fellowship and a relationship in the local church. And unfortunately, for one reason or another, the importance of water baptism has been diminished in the evangelical church in recent years. And it's been replaced by walking down an aisle and filling out a card. That's not what the Bible prescribes for a public profession of faith. A public profession of faith is when you're baptized, symbolizing what has happened to you spiritually. So have you been baptized in the biblical manner? Have you publicly identified with Christ and his church? And pastor, I don't need church to be a Christian. Watch you on the internet every now and then. I don't need to be there. I don't need to have relations. Yes, you do. Just as surely as your thumb needs to be with your hand to have a relationship with your body, you need to be a part of a local church, whether that's here or somewhere else. So are you plugged in? Are, are you invested? Not just that you come every once in a while. Are you truly submitting yourself to accountability and exercising your gifts in the context of the local church? And finally, and most importantly, I told you the key to making progress in sanctification is in the text today. Here it is. Final question. Do you live every day in the light of the truth that because you're united to Christ by faith, you are in fact dead to sin. Does that have any impact on the way you live your life? If the answer is yes, then you're well on your way to having a year of sanctification and spiritual growth. And I pray that all of us will. We need the Lord's help, though, don't we? Let's go to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. and It's a difficult word. Hard to understand. Theologians call it a mystery. But the facts are plain, that we as believers through faith in Christ are united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so we should count ourselves dead to sin. We've been set free from bondage. We no longer have to sin. And yet, Lord, we know if this year's like the last, we will be tempted and we will fail. And so, Lord, we thank you for your grace that is new every day. But rather than leading us into license and increased sinfulness, Lord, we pray that your grace would lead us to holiness and personal sanctification. Father, I pray that for myself. I pray it for every member of this church. Lord, that we would recognize in one another true life change in the year ahead. Not so that we can boast or pat ourselves on the back, so that we can be everything that you want us to be, light and salt in this community for the glory of Jesus. And I pray it all in his name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. 
To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.